So anyways, let me just add my welcome to Lance's. Uh, we're, we're thankful that you're here. And um, we have been going for about three and a half years as a church. Um, and we've been meeting in the afternoons uh, most of that time. And so today's our first morning service, um, technically. And we'll run like this from here on out, Lord willing. So um, we're thankful that you guys came. Um, but also, in the fall of 2019, we, we started a series in the Gospel of Mark. And so we've, we've been using the Gospel of Mark and just looking at Mark's Gospel, uh, answering the question from the text, who is Jesus? So that's been the question that we've been looking at for the past nine or ten weeks. Um, and we'll continue to, to look at Mark's Gospel uh, again in February. We, ha- we still have a long ways to go. I think we're only in chapter three. Um, so we still have a long ways to go there. And so, but this month, um, especially with our new location and new time and, and just some, some different things changing around, um, what we typically do in January uh, has, been, has been kind of our custom is to look again at our, our vision and our values as a church. Now, I did not plan a vision talk because it's the year 2020. And I didn't title it Vision 2020 for that very purpose. So uh, just in case, I do this every single year. I'm already ahead of the game on that. But we want to look at it again for those who are covenant members of our church to say, remember, this is what we believe. This is what we believe that God has called us to as a local congregation. This is why we felt it necessary to start a new church, to do the hard work of starting a new church from scratch and doing all that. But also just with new folks here who may not know what we're about and, and maybe want to know a little bit more. And, and just to be honest, a lot of organizations and a lot of churches really only have vision statements just to kind of fill a space on their website, and they never go back to it. They never mention it. And so we don't want to be that type of, of church. We want, to, we want to have a vision that we have on our website that we're conscious of, but also that we're attempting to live out. So that's what we're trying to do. So, um, and I just want to be clear, too, I'm not going to preach from our vision statement. We're, I'm going to preach from, uh, from the Word this, this morning um, like we typically do here at Christ the King. We walk through a text of Scripture verse by verse which is known as expository preaching, and so that's our normal diet here. Um, that's where the truth lies, and so we want to, to dive into the truth of God's, God's Word. And we'll also look at our values over the, next coming, over, over the coming weeks as well. And those won't be extended topical sermons either. Those will be straight from the Bible. And the reason why we do that, and the reason why I want to hammer that point home, is because... Uh, I want us to understand that we did not come up with vision, we did not come up with values just kind of out of thin air. That we, we believe the vision and values that we have come directly from the Bible. And so we want to live according to Scripture, and so, so that's where it comes from. It doesn't come from ideals that, we kind of, or that I kind of think, oh, this is how a church should be. Or we look at the world and say, well, the world wants us to look this particular way so that the, the message of the gospel can be broadly accepted. And so we'll, we'll live our life this way so it's accepted in that way. That's not how we do it. We, we, we lift it from the scriptures and we try to live it out according to the scriptures uh, as well. So 
it probably started around the, the late 80s, early 90s is when you began to see organizations, uh, the, the whole kind of mission uh, statement, vision statement began to just be huge. And everybody, everybody was getting a vision statement. Everybody was, was moving in that direction uh, as far as a company goes and even, even churches. And the reason why people did this is because research just showed that you, you want, if in an organization, you want the people who are part of your organization to broadly, at least, be on the same page, kind of uh, believing the same thing about your particular business or your church or, or whatever it is that you might be a part of, so that, so that generally you're all moving in the same direction. So, um, it, and it helps, too, in just defining what's important uh, to that organization. So a lot of times you can go on a church website or, or a, an organization's website, and you can read their vision statement. Usually it pops up on that, that first page, and you get a general idea, okay, this is, this is what they value, this is the direction that they're heading. So the, the school that we're meeting in right now has uh, a vision statement, and it's this. I don't know if, if our administrators and teachers here know this, but um, it's on your website. Uh, it says, it's, it's challenging and empowering our students to learn for a lifetime. Now, that's a school that I would want my kids to be a part of right there. But then I think the first question you would probably ask is, how? How do, how do we accomplish challenging and empowering our students to learn for a lifetime? That's, that seems like a massive goal, and I don't even know where to begin on that. Well, that's, that's where values come into play. That's where you say, okay, well, this is, this is, these are what, this is what we value according to our vision statement. And so uh, South Columbia Elementary's values are this, uh, according to their vision statement, respect ourselves and others, be organized and ready to learn, be attentive and receptive to all learning opportunities, and be responsible for our learning actions and attitudes. And so you look at that and go, okay, I, I think we can accomplish that. I think there's some certain things that we can do in the midst of that that will help us kind of fulfill this vision of empower, challenging and empowering our students to learn for a lifetime. So just like this school has a vision statement, uh, Christ the King has a vision statement. And it's this, and it's on the front of your worship guide. But it's this, to be a people who spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things through Jesus Christ. To be a people who spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things through Jesus Christ. And so our values, we have three values, which are word, community, and mission, which we will, we will spell out over the coming weeks. But, but overall, this is, this is a big vision. And, and to look at it, at first glance, it seems impossible, and it is impossible. There is absolutely no way that we can accomplish that on our own. And even looking at it without minus the, the values, we would say, man, I don't know if we can actually accomplish that ever. And that's where our values come into play. But, it, but this is what the Bible calls us as the church to do in our life together. So because that's, that's the thread of the Scripture, the thread of the scripture is the supremacy of God in Christ. And the Bible never wavers from that message. 
It never says, yeah, yeah, the supremacy of God in Christ, but we got some things over here that we need to accomplish and some things that we need to talk about about ourselves here. No, that never happens in the Bible. It is always and only about the supremacy of God in Christ. And so we'll look at one text today to make this particular point. So if you have a Bible, we will be in uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. And if you're using one of our church Bibles there, it's on page uh, 1086. So Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament, in the church Bible, it's on page 1086. And when you get to chapter 1, if you're unfamiliar with, with the Bible, those big bold numbers that you see there are the chapter numbers. Okay, so when I say chapter 1, that's what I mean right there. And then when I say verses 15 through 20, I'm talking about those little tiny numbers that are beside the verses. So we're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And I'll read that for us. This is God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us as a people. God, we are thankful that we can read these words uh, in, your, in, your, in your Bible and know that they are true, and what you say about your Son is true and relevant for us in the year 2020. And so, God, I pray that you would give us attentive ears today to hear what you have to speak to us today from your Word. And we pray all of these, these things in Jesus' name. So since we're kind of jumping midway through a chapter in a book that we haven't been in uh, in a long time, uh, I want to give us some context from what Paul is talking about here. Paul is the author of this letter to the church in Colossae. So uh, Colossae doesn't, no longer exists. It's modern-day Turkey, but this was a city, uh, city in that um, area of the country. And in verses 1 through 14... Paul is letting the church in Colossae know how he has been praying for them. So 1 through 14 is this extended explanation that is not uncommon to Paul in his letters to say, this is how I've been praying for you. This is how I've been describing you to other people. And so through, through Paul's prayer, uh, us as 21st century readers kind of find out what kind of church uh, the church in Colossae is. And so even with their issues, and they, they have some issues. This is why Paul is writing the letter to the Colossians, is because they have issue, issues. But even with their issues, 
just through Paul's description of them, you can just tell that they are a beautiful community of believers. Like you want to be part of that church. You want to be part of that community through Paul's explanation of them. But Paul makes it very clear and very quickly that they are not the way they are in and of themselves. They didn't just become this way on their own. So in verses 12 and 13, Paul tells us or describes to us the way in which they got there. He describes to us, this is why I can describe you this way. So look at verses 12 and 13, just above our main text. Paul says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then we have our text. And then we come upon verses 15 through 20. So Paul says uh, it's about the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And essentially Paul is saying, let's just pause there a moment and let me describe to you who this beloved son is. Let me describe to you who this, who this person is that we find redemption. And so Paul launches into this, this beautiful cosmic exposition of who Jesus is. And then it is packed full of the riches of the person and work of Christ. So much so that we're not going to be able to cover every minute detail of this particular passage in the next half hour. But there are two realities that I want us to explore from our text that I think will help us understand uh, what it is we feel like God has called us to as a church. Now, these are not in your, uh, in your worship guide, but you can just jot these down if you'd like to take notes. The first point in the outline is that Jesus is supreme over creation. Jesus is supreme over creation. And point number two is Jesus is supreme over the new creation. So supreme over the creation and supreme over the new creation. So we'll explain, I'll explain both of those. But the kind of the main gist of it that, that Paul is wanting his readers to understand, and his readers include you and I, we're recipients of this letter alongside the Colossian church, but He wants us to know that Jesus, not the people who make up the church, is supreme. Jesus is the one who is supreme. And the rest of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae is built on this particular idea, on these six verses. Because the church in Colossae, much like us, had temptations that, that, that were uh, running amok amongst their congregation. They had their struggles. They had outside influencers who were trying to, to speak to them a different message, a different, different philosophies, different ideas, different ways of thinking, different belief systems, different power structures even. And Paul wants them to know or wants them to have a vision that surpasses all other visions. That when they are met with these different philosophies or these different belief systems, that they have this vision of the risen Christ that trumps everything else. And this is what Paul is doing in these six verses here for them. 
He wants them to see that the glory and the beauty and the supremacy of Christ outshines everything else. Philosophies, no matter how eloquent they are, belief systems, no matter how well we think they kind of work for our own good, and even powers and power structures and people who are in power. Paul wants them to know Jesus outshines all of that. So Paul uses language in these verses poetically, so much so that that most biblical scholars believe verses 15 to 20 to be uh, that Paul borrowed language from an early Christian hymn to communicate this to the Colossian church. Because Paul is wanting for us to use our imaginations to put us before the risen Christ. And this was not uncommon for Paul to do. Um, We were in the book of Galatians not too long ago, and if you remember from that particular letter, Paul says to the Galatian church, look, you've seen Christ risen. You You were at the cross, and you saw him rise. And then when you start doing a little bit of research, you realize, like, no, they weren't. They weren't anywhere close to the cross during that particular time. They didn't see Jesus walk the face of the earth. What is Paul talking about? And what Paul is talking about is he has given them such a vision of the gospel that they were able to say, it was like we were there. And this is what Paul is wanting to do in these six verses. He wants to take you there. He wants to take you to to the cross. He wants to take you before the life of Jesus so that you have this vision that is greater than anything else in this world. That's what Paul does here. He wants you to, to get beyond the black and white, which is where we try to, try to maintain ourselves, or the technical, or even the dogma that gets pushed upon us day in and day out. He wants us to focus purely on Christ alone as he's seen in the Bible. Because the best safeguard against believing things that are not true is an intelligent appreciation for the doctrine of Christ what the Bible teaches us about Jesus, which we have laid before us in our text today. And so I think one of the best places uh, to start understanding Christ's supremacy is to start at the beginning, uh, over the whole of creation, which is understanding that Christ is supreme over creation. Look at verses 15 through 17 uh, again with me. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So first off, let me define that word supremacy for you, because I've, I've used it a few times already. It is not a word that we use in everyday language. I recognize that. So I'm going to give you a technical definition. But supremacy is someone or something that has a position that's ultimate in power, rank, glory, authority, and importance. Supremacy is someone or something that has a position that's ultimate in power, rank, glory, authority, and importance. And and that word ultimate means that it's the the end-all, be-all. The buck stops with that particular person or that particular idea. It is ultimate in every area of our life. 
So when we announce as a church that our vision is to be a people who spread a passion for the supremacy of God, what we are declaring is that we believe Jesus to be ultimate in power, rank, glory, authority, and importance in all things in our life together as believers and as a church. We believe that to be what God is for us because the Bible tells us this. Some of you might be uh, familiar with this quote from the theologian Abraham Kuyper. I've I've said it before, but it's it's a famous quote, but he says this, and this is why he can say this. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And the reason being is found here in our text. In these first three verses, Paul is helping his readers to understand that Christ is not a created being, but that he is the creator. He's not created, but he's the creator. Let me give you just a little bit of background of why Paul kind of felt the need to do this. So the Colossian problem that was happening amongst them and why Paul felt it necessary to write them a letter was coming from a group of people known as Gnostics. Now, Gnosticism still exists today. There are people who still practice this, this, uh, this belief system. But just a general uh, definition of what a Gnostic is, is Gnostics believe that the material world was evil. So what your body Uh, those things that you can feel and touch and you can actually see. So the material world is evil and the spiritual world is good. General definitions, uh, physical world, material world, evil, spiritual world, good. So within this belief system, it's impossible to believe that God, who is spirit and good, would create the world which is material and therefore evil. Impossible to believe. So Jesus, being a physical being, could not be God incarnate. God would not uh, lower himself in that way to make himself uh, material, make him something that you could see and actually touch. So, uh, which, which then makes Jesus, at best, according to Gnostics, a specially chosen man endowed with some special powers. And that's it. He's not God incarnate. He's not a savior. He's just a really good example. He's just somebody that we can just just follow uh, his life. So obviously misunderstandings were beginning to creep into the Colossian church. And this is why Paul tells them in, chapters two, in chapter 2 of, of Colossians, and if you want to flip there with me, Colossians 2, and then you have verse 4, Paul says to them, I say this, so everything that just come, came before it, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And a plausible argument is something that seems true, but isn't really true. So Paul is saying, I'm writing this to you so you're not deluded by these half-truths. And then you skip down to verse 8 of chapter 2, and Paul says to them, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy 
and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So this is why Paul is writing to them, so that they are not deluded, so that they are not falling prey to these empty philosophies and these empty uh, deceitful things that just come from human understanding. And that's it. So what Paul tells us in verses 15 through 17 paints a much different picture of who Jesus is. So in verse 15, Paul tells us first what Jesus' relationship to God is. And what we learn very quickly is that Jesus is not some specially endowed human. He's not that at all. But that he is the very image of the invisible God. So just to be clear, when you hear the word image in the Bible, particularly when it's referring to, to, to Jesus, it's not referring to kind of our understanding of image like Facebook facial recognition. So I can flip through my Facebook um, pictures and the, rec- face, the facial recognition will, will highlight one of my kids. Like, this is you right here because it's, we're similar in that way. That's not what the image here is talking about in, in the scriptures, image in ancient thought was not regarded as a mere copy of an object, but it was something that held the, sump, the substance of a particular object. So let me just kind of illustrate it this way. My son, who turned nine today, by the way, so if you want to wish him a happy birthday, he, he looks like me. You would be able to say, that is your son. I, I totally agree with that. We have some of the same mannerisms. He, we enjoy some of the same things. Um, but, but he doesn't hold my essence. He doesn't possess my power. And at the end of the day, he's not me. He's Malachi. So you wouldn't say, or I wouldn't say, well, if you want to get to know me, if you want to get to know Kevin, you just need to go, you just need to look to Malachi, and you will find out everything you want to know about Kevin. You probably would just find out the bad stuff, but you would not find out everything you need to know from any of my kids. But Jesus is not like this. Jesus was not made in God's image. That's us. That's Genesis 1.27. We were made in the, in the image of God. Jesus is God's image. He is God's image. He is the exact replica of God. The, the, only, the only modern day kind of illustration that we can, can kind of come up with this is just, is just a photograph. It's the photograph. If you get a photograph of yourself, it looks just like you. Like there's no difference here. That's that's what we get here when God and Jesus are compared. It's the exact same thing, the exact same person. So Jesus is the fullness of the reality of God in human form. This is why uh, John could say in, in his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 18, that no one has seen God. No one's seen God. Nobody has ever seen God. But Jesus makes him known. Because Jesus is the, uh, visible, the invisible God made visible. And because of this, 
You can say, if you want to know God, if you want to know the God of the Bible, look to Jesus, and you will know him perfectly. And the way you find the real Jesus is laid before you in the Bible. That is where you find out about the real Jesus. It is in the scriptures. Well, verse 15 also lets us know that that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And we can say that this, this part of this text is the linchpin. Everything from the creation to the new creation rests on Jesus being the firstborn of creation. Now, let me explain that Jesus being referenced as the firstborn of, of creation is not talking about him actually physically being born or created. Paul is using this particular type of language to show Jesus' superiority of rank. That Jesus comes before everyone and everything else. Again, John 1.1 1, 1 talks about Jesus was in the beginning. He was there in Genesis 1.1. Jesus was in the beginning. And the unique, this is the unique supremacy of, God, of Christ over all creatures. And what that means is that he is, he is the mediator of creation. And that apart from Christ, everything around us, including yourself, falls apart. Everything falls apart. So you begin to pick up on how Paul chooses to communicate this idea with the use of the two words in our English translation. So if you're using the English Standard Version of the Bible, Paul uses the words, all things. And that word, those words can be translated, the totality. The totality. So over and over again, in these six verses, and five times Paul says all things in six verses. So if, if someone repeats a word that many times in that short of a span, that means that he, that he wants you to pay attention to that. So Paul keeps coming back to all things, all things. So Paul is literally saying, Jesus is supreme over the totality There is nothing that is left out. Nothing. Not one molecule. Not one world leader. Nothing is left out. It's the totality. It is all things. This is how one writer put it. He said, You have never seen anything in your life that God did not create, and Christ is intimately involved in upholding in existence the very things that are in your field of vision at the moment. These same things, along with you who are looking at them, were made by and through Christ and were made for one supreme reason, to belong to or to be unto Christ. So Paul is covering all the bases here when he says in verses 16 through 17, he kind of goes through, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, uh, thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much power that person has. It doesn't matter what they can do. Uh, uh, Jesus reigns supreme even over that. And then he adds again just there, all things were created through him. And for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things 
hold together. There's no doubt where Paul wants us to go when looking at Jesus. Now, the fact, the fact is, even if you don't acknowledge Jesus in this way, even if you've come in here and you're saying, you know what, that isn't what I believe about Jesus, I don't believe that at all, the Bible, still, the Bible says that you still owe everything to him. And that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. No matter, no matter whether you believe him or not, your knee will bow. And so you can either, you can either acknowledge that now. The, the Bible clearly says that, uh, that, uh, that the day of salvation is, is now. There's never been a better time than right at this moment to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Or you will experience that reality at the second coming or at your death where you will be put before a holy God to give an account apart from Christ. So I would encourage you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, to come to Christ today and seek, seek me out after the service and we, I will be more than happy to talk with you about it. Because the reality is, is that Jesus not only created you, but that he is sustaining you. He is holding you together at this very moment. He's, he's, and he's not only holding you together, but he's holding together the cosmos. There is a reason that there is order in the cosmos. There is a reason that there is order even in our governments. It's because Jesus is holding it together. Now, I don't know how you feel about the, the military strike that happened this week in Iran, I do know that it affects a lot of you who are in the military drastically. But one thing that I can say, because then you, you start reading the, the Twitter feeds and the Facebook feeds and, and Instagram and, and all of that, uh, and you start to see, what you start to see is fear. What you start to see is, is this, this confusion that kind of settles into people's hearts and minds that the world is about to end. But as believers, we don't look at things like that cynically and just say, you know, go ahead and push the button. We're all good. We're going to go to heaven anyways. We don't say that. We, we look at that and go, hopefully we say, Jesus is in control. That everything that is happening in this world is under his rule. And ultimately, it is good. It's good because Jesus is good and that he works all things for our good, and for God's glory. And we can say that with confidence. And the way we know this is found in our second point, that Jesus is supreme over the new creation. So look at verses 18 through 20. Paul goes on and says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what Paul is essentially saying there is Jesus has entered into the fray. 
He does not conduct the affairs of our world from some safe place in the clouds, as we sometimes imagine him to be doing. No, that is incorrect. That is bad theology, because the significance of Christianity, just to say, and not to hurt anybody's feelings, the significance of Christianity is not you. It's not Christians. It's not, it's not the church. That's not the significance of Christianity. The significance of Christianity is Jesus. That's it. That's the significance of Christianity. The significance is found in who he is, in his person, and what he has and continues to accomplish, which is his work. And he's, Paul says he's still doing that. He is still reconciling all things to himself. So I, I got a, I got a, this is going to sound nerdy, but um, I've been reading a lecture. I know all of you guys do that a lot, but that it, 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 it's, it's titled with a question. And it's, it, the question is this, why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? And the reason being is we live in America now, so Christianity, for the most part, is tolerated. Okay, we, it's tolerated. We we have freedom to to meet in a in a school, which is owned by the government, and we're free to meet here and, uh, and worship in the way that we want to worship, to preach from the book that we want to, to preach from. And so, so this is, when you talk about the first three centuries and how hard it was for Christians, that's, that's kind of foreign to us. But in the first three centuries, to be a Christian was radical in every sense of the word. To be a Christian in the first three centuries uh, at worst, you were killed. And when I say killed, a lot of Christians were, were, were not just, you know, hung or uh, just, you know, their throats slit or whatever. They were put in the arena with lions to be killed for sport. And at best, at best, you were alienated from all of society, which included your family members, which included all of your friends, and included your vocation, because most vocations had their own God that they worshipped. So if you said, I worship the one true God, well, you just lost your livelihood forever. So why would anybody become a Christian in the first three centuries? Why would they do that? And thank God they did, or otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here. But, but to answer that question, it's because Jesus, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, the image of the invisible God, the one who reigns supreme at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven, risked everything for his creation. That he, he did it first. He, he was the forerunner. He plowed the way for us. And that's why people became Christians in the first three centuries. So in verses 18 through 20, Paul is telling us that in Jesus, Jesus is coming to earth and living a life that we could not, like Lance explained to us from the Ten Commandments, Jesus is the only one who fulfills, fulfills the Ten Commandments. He's the only one. So living a life we could not, dying a death that we deserved for our sin, our sin has a death sentence. Jesus took that on. 
and then being resurrected from the dead. What Paul is telling us is all of that establishes Jesus's supremacy over creation and over the new creation. And so in establishing his supremacy through his life, death, and resurrection, he establishes his new creation that is called the church. Us in small parts. To which he is the head. To He is the one in which we get all of our nourishment from. He is the one who has established us. So what is now happening in real time is that Jesus is reconciling to himself all things, the totality, that he is continuing on in that particular work. And and that, that reconciling to himself, all that means is that Jesus is making peace, that he is bringing the shalom of God to every sphere of the universe. And that happens, it only happens, through the blood of the cross. So essentially, what our vision statement reminds us is that this church is not to us. As as Lance read Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. This church can't bring you peace. I can't bring you peace. Your family members can't bring you peace. Nothing in your life can bring you peace, ultimately. But the God of the universe, the one who reigns supreme over the totality of creation, who has the whole world in his hands, the whole of the cosmos in his hand, he can bring you this peace through the blood of his son. And that is what we want to have a passion to spread. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have given us a vision that is impossible to to us in and of ourselves, but it's not impossible to you through Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would be submissive to what you have to teach us uh, continually through your word this, in this new year, that we would continue to be a people who have a passion to spread the supremacy of God in Christ in all things, in every sphere of life that we are in, in our families, in our marriages, in our schools, in our vocations, in our neighborhoods, in every area that we would be pointing people to the peace that Jesus brings. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.